You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So the other day near my house, I saw a strange hairy creature lope into the woods. Like a raccoon, you mean? No, he was upright, bipedal, slight stoop, kind of a swaying gait. Wow, Seth, that description actually sounds like Big Dan. Yep, Big Dan, my plumber, exactly. I've been telling that guy not to cut through the backyard for weeks, also to get a haircut because he really lets things go. Your plumber is named Big Dan? Yeah, well, he's big and his name is Dan. (laughs) So things are not always what they appear, yet there are Bigfoot sightings all over the world. The ape-like creature is not the only creature that chills and thrills. Yeti, his snowy cousin, zombies and vampires have all been spotted. But can these eyewitness reports be believed? I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Skeptic Check is our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Coming up... Paranormal investigator Joe Nickel on why seeing isn't always believing. Also, other ways our vision can get confused. How magic tricks deceive. And music is good for the soul, but can it make you smarter? We'll compare studies. Monsters, magic, and music all coming up. But first... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. Sometimes our brains take a holiday. When a major 9.0 earthquake and tsunami hit Japan, reports on the devastation and the cause of the tragedy abounded. There was plenty of solid scientific reporting, of course, but also misinformation. Skeptic Phil Plate joins us to challenge a doubtful theory, making the rounds about what exactly causes severe earthquakes. The problem is when people try to correlate things that have nothing to do with earthquakes with earthquakes, and we're in that season again, people are now blaming the moon for earthquakes. The moon orbits the earth in an ellipse, and so sometimes it's closer and sometimes it's farther away. It just so happens that the Japanese earthquake happened near the time of an interesting point in the moon's cycle when it was approaching a full moon, when it's in line with the earth and the sun, at the same time it's at perigee, the closest point in its orbit to the earth. And a lot of people are calling this the super moon because it's going to be a little bit bigger in the sky and its gravity effects will be a little bit bigger. You see, the problem here is that the Japanese quake happened a week before the moon was full, a week before the moon was actually nearest the Earth. And in fact, the moon was farther away from the Earth than it usually is on average. So clearly, the moon had nothing to do with the Japanese earthquake. Okay, now I would have thought that 
somebody would have thought of this mechanism, namely the tidal effect of the moon, the fact that it pulls on the top of the earth a little more than it pulls on something that's a couple of miles deep on the earth. They would have thought of that hundreds of years ago and considered that as a mechanism for earthquakes. You're right, Seth. People have been looking into the moon triggering earthquakes for probably centuries. I think it's that we can see it. People try to associate it with all sorts of things, and earthquakes at least has some semblance of making sense. The moon has gravity. It pulls on the earth. We know about tides. And so if the moon is pulling on the earth, maybe it does something. It stretches the earth in some way that can trigger seismic events. Now, right away, we know this does not happen. There have been studies on this. People, of course, have been trying to predict earthquakes for a long time, and the moon seems like a pretty obvious target. And so they've tried to correlate the phase of the moon, the distance to the moon, all sorts of properties of the moon with earthquakes. And the best you can do is that shallow, low-magnitude earthquakes are kind of, sort of, correlated with where the moon is in the sky. But other than that, there's really no effect at all. There's no correlation between the moon and strong earthquakes like this. The problem is people believe it because it kind of makes sense. And the idea just spreads. Look at how many people think emergency rooms are busier on the full moon or people act funny on the full moon. In fact, study after study after study shows that this is an illusion. This is not a real effect. People just remember it better because it's one of these things that sort of sets off their memory. Hey, remember that time we had the full moon and all those babies were born? Oh yeah, there must be some correlation. But correlation does not imply causation, as we like to say in skepticism. Just because two things happen around the same time doesn't mean they're physically connected. And the same thing is true here with the moon and earthquakes. So, Phil, is there really no reliable way to predict the really big earthquakes? Well, as far as I know, there aren't. And this is a real problem. We're getting very good at predicting volcanic eruptions, and there have been many times when catastrophic eruptions have been predicted so well that whole towns have been able to be evacuated and thousands, tens of thousands of lives have been saved. But volcanoes give us clues. There's rumbling and there's magma movement and all sorts of things like that. Sometimes with a big earthquake, there's no warning at all. The pressure just builds and builds and builds and then it snaps. And so there's no warning whatsoever. These things just happen. I think that the real answer here may depend on simply having more data. At some point in the future, maybe we can put strain gauges along all the major faults of the Earth. I mean, it's something that's sort of inconceivable now, but maybe not in 20 years. And with enough data and enough compute power, maybe we really could predict what's going to go next. But at the moment, it doesn't sound like looking at the moon is the way to tell when the next big shake's going to shake us up. I think you're right. With more data, the science will win eventually. Something will come up. We will be able to find something. And if there's any sort of predictor for earthquakes, scientists will find it. The moon is certainly not the place to look, but there are other places to look here on Earth that I think will give us those clues that we need. All right. Well, Phil Plate, thank you very much. And by the way, you've saved me some money because I'm not going to invest in that depilatory cream I normally use for the back of my hands when there's a full moon. <laughs> Thanks, Seth. Thank you, Phil. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish. Phil Plate runs the Bad Astronomy blog at Discover Magazine. Okay, this is where things get hairy and big. Few things are as big and hairy as Bigfoot, or as he's also known, Sasquatch. This elusive ape-like creature has ambled into the imaginations of many thousands of people since the mid-19th century when he was first glimpsed. The most popular venue, by the way, for spotting Sasquatch these days along the Redwood Highway in California. There are plenty of Bigfoot sightings. 
What there aren't, however, are Bigfoot bones, artifacts, scat, DNA, dead bodies, or real Sasquatch fur. No solid physical evidence, in other words. But sightings persist, and because they do, the phone rings nonstop in Joe Nichols' upstate New York office. For two decades, Joe has been the go-to guy for weird happenings. He is the rare and maybe the only full-time science-based paranormal investigator. When he's called upon to investigate a Bigfoot sighting, he pulls out a thick cryptozoology file, that is, the study of animals for which there's no hard evidence. Zombies, vampires, yeti, they're all buddies in this folder. And Joe wouldn't investigate if belief didn't persist. Tracking the man-beasts is Joe Nichols' account of getting to the hairy truth of monster mythology. The Bigfoot creature known as Sasquatch uh, is ubiquitous. We have sightings, for example, in uh, Pennsylvania woods. We have Bigfoot-type creatures elsewhere around the globe. For example, the so-called abominable snowman or the yeti of the Himalayas I was in China recently and was uh, on the trail of the Yaren, and I've been in Australia and gone into the Blue Mountains looking for the Yowie. And these are all sort of Bigfoot-like creatures. There are many, many more. My goodness, it sounds like they're extraordinarily widespread, and yet they seem to be (laughs) nonetheless rather cryptic. I have to say that in 2008, this radio show attended a press conference in nearby Palo Alto where Bigfoot tracker Joe Biscardi and two men from Georgia claimed to have the body of a Bigfoot. Uh, apparently, they stumbled upon this, uh, this body in the Georgia woods, and they called up Joe Biscardi, and the next thing you know, it's on ice, and there's this press conference in Palo Alto. Do you remember this event? Oh, I do. In fact, uh, just a couple of things come to mind in talking about it. Of course, it was a hoax. It was, uh, I think, animal scraps inside a furry costume frozen in ice, and it reminds me of the earlier Minnesota Iceman hoax, which made the rounds of the traveling carnivals. And I once was at a carnival that showed the Sasquatch safely frozen in ice. And they were having uh, trouble with the cooling unit or something, and the lid was up, and part of the, the ice had melted off, and I was able to test with my fingers the the creature, which seemed to be from... Uh, shall we say, the uh, the area known as latex, <laughs> that, re- that mystical region. <laughs> and uh, as to Biscardi, we had a Bigfoot sighting near Amherst, uh, New York, an area called Clarence, on the uh, farm of a Mr. Mobius, and he does descend from the famous Mobius Strip, Mobius, apparently. And I went out there and looked at the pictures. Of course, they're obviously, it's not Bigfoot, it's obviously Big Suit, you know, it's a guy in a costume again. But Biscardi was out there with his van and his co-workers and all this sophisticated uh, Bigfoot tracking equipment. And if ever you saw guys who didn't know what they were doing, this was them. But I, I had a nice night around the campfire going out uh, with all kinds of sophisticated infrared devices and stuff looking for Bigfoot. Well, I have to say that what was impressive about this particular press event was how much interest it generated. There was a whole phalanx of television cameras set up. Uh, They were credulous for the first half hour, and then they turned somewhat incredulous. I had to ask myself, what is somebody who promotes this, such as Joe Piscardi, what is he getting out of this? Well, I think... There are a lot of factors here. One is that we're really tapping a powerful mythology. You know, when we look at 
usually when most of us think of mythology, we think of something out of the college textbooks, maybe ancient Greece and Rome. But we're watching a true myth being developed in our time with Bigfoot. It's it's a powerful image of, of a creature who's somewhat like us, but a throwback to the past, and is sort of becoming the symbol of the endangered species. And so there's a lot of kind of a mix of uh, romance and environmental uh, protection and uh, adventure all wrapped up in this image of this fellow who's a type of us, a man beast. And it's good for business everywhere. If you go to the Pacific Northwest and go into Bigfoot country, I mean, I've stayed at Bigfoot motels and had Bigfoot burgers and, you know, and so on. It's just endless. People are fascinated by it, and uh, even if some people think of it as a sort of comic book reality, they still find it fun. Well, to me, it's somewhat reminiscent of uh, the supposed crash and landing of aliens in Roswell, New Mexico. Whatever else you want to say about that story, and and you do say many things about it in your book, it's uh, it's been the best thing that ever happened to Roswell, New Mexico. So, (laughs) So I can imagine that for these small towns in the Pacific Northwest, which are supposedly located in Bigfoot territory, this might be a great thing. But let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, the evidence for or against, if there is any Bigfoot. Uh, people like this idea. There may be undiscovered species, and for their part, the uh, you know the paleontologists occasionally come up with new species, uh, hominid species, and so forth. So you know, on the face of it, it just doesn't seem uh, doesn't seem wrong. But but if someone asks you at a cocktail party once they find out what your job is, and they say, "Look, does this thing exist or not?" What do you tell them? Well, I tell them it's very, very, very unlikely because there's just no fossil evidence supporting the idea of this kind of hominid. I mean, we have, when I was in China, uh, I was able to go to the site, and it's now a World Heritage Site. It's quite a place. I'm glad to see it so protected and taken care of. But a place called Zhokodian, and it's a mountainous region southwest of, of Beijing, where early in the last century, a primate, a man-like or man-ape known as Peking Man. I'm sure you've heard of Peking Man, one, yes. of, the, one of the great uh, early hominids. And that creature was, of course, a real creature. So was a very large ape man known as Gigantopithecus. And both of those were in China. And we now think, that, of course, because of the fossil record, that they're extinct. But it's not such a stretch for a lot of people to think that, well, some of them survived in remote regions. And I think that's what happens with so many of our fabulous creatures, is that we think that somewhere in the great depths of the ocean could be some leviathan, or in the very remote uh, woods of the Pacific Northwest, some creature. It's just that it's less and less likely because our planet is shrinking and we're, we're really not finding evidence for these creatures. Well, uh, I can certainly understand the appeal. I mean, we probably are wired to be interested in other sort of human-like creatures. Now, you've made a couple of, if if you will, sort of theoretical arguments in in the sense that you can say, look, if there is a Bigfoot species out there, you you can't just have one or two of these guys. You you have to have a breeding population, so there must be a lot of them. And if there's a lot of them, then why is it that we don't find bones or whatever? I mean, you know, and, and given that there's barely enough habitat for, you know, burrowing owls here in California, how could there be enough habitat? habitat for these guys. But those those arguments can all be countered, but yes, but, and you know, you come up with some special circumstances. So 
what I would ask you is what about the evidence that people present? Because they do. They're films and they're, you know, footprints in the, the mud and whatever, fur, that kind of stuff. You've looked at this stuff. Yes, there is quite a quantity of evidence. The trouble is it's all very poor quality. They're mostly footprints, blurred photos, sightings of uh, something in which people have no physical evidence. All the evidence is really just the kind of evidence that you would have if you were dealing with a creature who is mythical and who was promoted at times by hoaxers. No good evidence. The quantity is high. The quality is, is very, very low. Your book is entitled Tracking the man beasts. And so what you're talking about here are the kinds of critters that bear at least some superficial resemblance to us. One that I hear about a lot is the chupacabra. Uh, In particular, when we were using the telescopes down in Puerto Rico, people would call up almost every night and say, by the way, there's a chupacabra in my backyard or whatever. Uh, A sort of goat-eating thing that was sometimes (laughs) suspected of being an alien and sometimes not. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the chupacabra. Well, the chupacabra came on the scene in 1995, and it was in Puerto Rico, and it spread to Mexico, and it spread as far as the southern United States. It spread almost entirely through Spanish-speaking media. It seemed to be precisely a Spanish-speaking phenomenon. And when we looked, and I, I was in touch with our our colleagues in Mexico and and elsewhere. I was myself, uh, when I was in um, Argentina, I was able to go out onto a ranch and and talk to a journalist and so forth about the chupacabra. And what we find is that in all the cases where we know what was attacking the little farm animals, uh, they were simply wild dogs or other ravenous beasts. They were not a chupacabra. There were actual, in Mexico, for example, they had stakeouts on farms, and they were actually able to see that wild dogs were killing the animals. The uh, public, though, is convinced that in many of the cases, the animals were drained of blood, and that's why this this idea of chupacabra or goat sucker came about. But when necropsies were performed on animals, in every case that I'm aware of, and there were several, it turned out that they were not drained of blood. What happened is, as the dead animals as the blood settled, just the force of gravity, it went to the lowermost part of the carcass. And so it, it was drained out of the bulk of the creature. And this is, this is responsible for creating the idea that it was a sort of vampiric attack. For the rest, you mentioned uh, extraterrestrial uh, image. It's equated with a vampire. Uh, this is all part of the mix of our cultural interest in such things. And one of the things I do with some of the creatures in my book is I trace the iconographic evolution. In other words, we start with an image. Mothman, for example, looked for all the world like a an owl, although bigger. And then over time, he gets arms and he gets alien-like eyes and so forth. And you can track the evolution of these creatures back again to my original idea that these are all myths, that, that they're part of a vast mythology that we're witnessing in our time. Hold on, and we'll have more beasts and belief in a moment. You're listening to Skeptic Check, Monsters, Magic, and Music, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We now return to Seth's discussion with Joe Nickel. Joe is the author of Tracking the Man Beasts, Sasquatch, Vampires, Zombies, and more, and claims he is also a rarity, if not unique, a full-time paranormal investigator. Joe, is it true that you really are the only full-time paranormal investigator in the world? I mean, are you the only guy with your job? Well, I think I'm the only one. I I qualify that usually and say full-time professional and so forth because I guess you could say some of the paranormal so-called investigators like ghost hunters may be more or less working full-time. There's certainly lots of investigators, but as far as I know, I'm the only one whose job title from a science-based evidential point of view actually with a background trained as an investigator with a world-famous detective agency. I think I'm the only one who's actually doing that from, you know, getting up in the morning and doing it full time. If there's anybody else, I'm not sure where he is. Yeah, you could but, start a uh, there, union. There would be room for two or three of us. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you could uh, sit and start a professional association. Well you, well, you used to be a magician. Does that somehow inform how you investigate paranormal activities today? I would imagine there's some useful skills there. It really does. Uh, l- let me uh, make just one quick instance of that. In dealing with, uh, it's a little off the topic of this book, but an earlier book I did was on uh, lake monsters. And much of what you said about uh, Bigfoot breeding population and so on, it of course applies to these lake monsters as well. And it seems that people are seeing a long-necked, multi-humped, undulating creature that seems to be slithering across waters in, in various places. Now, Science is very skeptical, of course, that, that there is any such creature in any of these lakes. So how do, we, how do we balance this when many of the people seem to me, and I've met them, been in their homes along the edges of lakes, uh, seem to be quite sane and sober and sincere. And I, I think that it's because what they're seeing is an illusion. They're seeing quite often an, one or two or three otters swimming in a line. And because the mind is programmed to think, oh, that's Nessie, or that's Ogopogo, or that's Champ, one creature, they're not perceiving that they're seeing three or four small creatures, but they're reading it as one long creature because it's they're swimming more or less in unison, and they're swimming in this undulating fashion. I think that's an illusion. And similarly, I could go on about uh, ghosts, uh, people hearing footsteps on the stairs and not realizing it was coming from the building next door, for example. And so I think my magician's background informs much of what I do, not so much in specific tricks, just knowing how easily we're fooled. I can be fooled, I have been fooled, and I have professionally fooled others. You may have taken one of my uh, wooden nickels and seen it be very rubbery and disappear at my fingertips. I have. And have four sides, where most coins have two. And so I think all of that uh, informs us to how our mind works a certain way and oftentimes works in a rather you know, efficient or a very plodding way. And if we're caught off guard, we can be fooled. Joe, you deal with 
tracking other sort of uh, man-like creatures, vampires, zombies. They, they are sort of homo sapiens. They've just made a wrong exit on the Hollywood freeway or something. Does anyone really ever call you up and say they've spotted a vampire or a zombie? Not so much. Those are more supernatural creatures and often just aspects of our cultural baggage. But I do hear about real vampires in earlier times in the United States and and elsewhere. Uh, I looked for vampire graves in New England, for example. There are some stories. We now recognize these stories as cases of uh, consumption, uh, the pallid appearance, the contagiousness, the spitting up of blood, that sort of thing. So there have been, quote-unquote, real vampire cases, and the same with zombies, cases that have been touted as as real. But in all of my work over all of the 40-some years that I've done this, I've never found anything that I thought was evidence of the supernatural or paranormal, and I increasingly am convinced that we live in a real and a natural world. Joe Nickel, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. If there's a hairy ape creature or member of the living dead ruining your day, Joe Nickel is the man to call. A paranormal investigator for the Center for Inquiry and author of many books, he puts on his hiking shoes for his latest, Tracking the Man Beasts, Sasquatch, Vampires, Zombies, and more. Well, face it, our eyes can deceive us. Whether it's when we spot a hairy creature in the woods that, upon closer inspection, is just a moss-covered branch, or we're sure the face in a potato is recently departed grandma's, except that your friend thinks it more closely resembles the outline of Thomas Jefferson. Or we watch a magician conjure a coin out of thin air. What we see is based on what we expect to see. That comes from experiences and memories. Magic, for example, doesn't exist. A coin can't materialize out of thin air, but it can look so convincing. Why is that? The answer to that question is not just magic. It's neuromagic, a branch of cognitive science conjured up by neuroscientists Stephen Macknick and Susanna Martinez-Conde. In their book, Slights of Mind, they reveal what no magician would ever dare, how the tricks are done, how magic deceives our unsuspecting brains. Steve, let me begin with you. Many of the tricks you describe in the book, and you reveal, too, you have spoiler alerts all over this tome, uh, these tricks depend on the fallibility of our visual system. So maybe you could describe the, the kinds of tricks that take advantage of our failure to be able to see everything. Well, magic tricks take advantage of more than just our visual system. They also take advantage of our cognitive systems and our other sensory systems as well. We're not really saying that the world around us isn't there. It is. But where actually the neural activity and neurochemical signals that bounce around inside our brain. And the only thing we could ever know about the world is filtered into us through other neurochemical events that come in through our sensory systems. So there's actually very little information that we have from the outside world. For example, in one of our optic nerves coming from our eyes, there's only about a million wires, a million axons of the neurons coming from the eye to the brain. Now, that may sound like a lot, but that basically means that we have a one million pixel camera for an eye. Now, think about your cell phone camera, which is probably more like five megapixels. So our eye is roughly five times crappier than a cheap cell phone camera. 
in terms of its actual resolution and the actual amount of information that can flow through it. But yet we have this incredibly rich perception of vision that far outstrips any cell phone camera. And that's because our brains take the information from the world and create this incredibly rich simulation using using the data from the real world to build this much richer simulation of the the world around us. And because of that, it's going to be filling in information and creating and confabulating and outright making up a bunch of stuff concerning the world around us so that we can navigate and communicate. And that is why there are these illusions that can happen in cognition like magic tricks or in vision like other, like visual illusions. So, so what you're saying is that our visual system takes a few clues and then uh, tries to infer the rest. It jumps to conclusions, as it were, because that has some survival value, presumably did have some survival value out on the savannas 100,000 years ago, and it also minimizes the amount of processing you have to do because, you know, you don't have to have a perfect system. But, but give me an example of a, of a magic trick that takes advantage of that. So in magic, one trick that we talk about in the book is with Johnny Thompson, and he is um, showing a woman on stage, and he uh, claims he's going to turn her white dress into a red dress, and he claps his hands, the entire room turns dark and instantaneously comes back on, and in fact, her dress does now look red, but her whole body looks red because all he did was turn on a red spotlight on her. And he laughs and he explains, okay, that was a cheap trick, his favorite kind, and now he'll go on to the next trick. So he claps his hands, the lights dim just like they did before, come back on, and now, in fact, she's under white light, but her dress is, in fact, red. And so they were able to do this by taking advantage of the way the visual system works by causing an after image that allowed them when the lights were off to actually switch the dresses without being seen. When you say an after image, uh, is this sort of like what I see if somebody uses a, a flash, for example, to take a picture of me, then I see, you know, the, the fade from that flash for, you know, a fraction of a second after the flash has gone off? That's exactly right. So with a flash, it can last a, quite a while, even a few seconds, because it's so very bright. But in normal vision, all the time we have after images, and those after images after actually help us see where things are normally as well. Susanna, the magicians that you would see, by this point, you had recognized that a lot of what they were doing was taking advantage of, of our perceptions, of our imperfect perceptions. Uh, did that help you to see how the tricks were done, or were you just as fooled as before? I'm just as fooled as before, but uh, it's not just me. Magicians themselves are just as fooled as before. I mean, a magician will know how a trick is done because uh, he has a rational understanding. He has previous knowledge on the possible techniques by which that trick is accomplished. But uh, your perception doesn't really change. These uh, processes are hardwired. They're ingrained in the brain. And the perception of magicians is not really that different from the perception from the rest of us. But, uh, Steve, you make the comment in the book that one of the groups that magicians can most easily fool is scientists. Sounds a little bit counterintuitive. Why is that? Well, James Randi says that the people most susceptible to magic have a PhD. And the reason he says that is because magicians have the feeling that the people who can pay attention the best are also the most easily controlled. So it's much easier to take someone who will pay attention very strongly and lead them down the garden path than to take someone who can't pay attention and, and lead them anywhere. For example, 
the worst audience that magicians can have are children because they don't have the ability to pay attention for very long periods of time. And in fact, there are specialized magicians who have special training and special skills and do special tricks just for kids because many tricks that would be done on adults simply won't work. They won't pay attention. So g give me some sort of insight that maybe uh, your research has, has uh, developed because of this uh, looking at the, the masters of deception. Yeah, it's still early days, but something that we're beginning to focus strongly in our research programs is about the interaction between attention and emotion. And this obviously can have a lot of uh, implications for entertainment and for marketing strategy, for advertising. Magicians know that they can use emotion and, for instance, comedy to misdirect. And for instance, uh, Johnny Thompson, the great Tom Sonny, he, he will say that uh, when the audience laughs, time stops. And then the magician can get away with anything in terms of maneuvers that the audience would notice otherwise. So this is something that is really not well understood, the interactions and the precise timing of emotions and attention, particularly comedy and laughter. So that is a new finding for neuroscience, and we're beginning to look deeply into it. I can imagine that if you can establish these connections, uh, you don't have to worry where your next meal is coming from, because I'm sure advertising agencies would love to talk to you about that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Susanna, one feature of our nervous systems that magicians apparently make great use of is adaptation, what you call adaptation here. Tell, tell us what that means in the context of your work and, and why we have it. Well, adaptation is basically a neural mechanism by which a neurons will stop responding or respond less to unchanging stimulation. For instance, in an example from everyday life, it's happened to all of us. We're all over the house looking for our glasses, and we realize that we have been wearing them all the time. That is an effect of adaptation. When we first put our glasses on, we can feel them against our skin, but after a while, the touch receptors adapt, nothing has changed, so neurons stop responding, and the consequence is that we stop perceiving our glasses. So for the brain, the only thing that matters is when something changes. We don't have enough neural resources to keep signaling, nothing has changed, nothing has changed, nothing has changed. All that we care about is when something comes in or comes out. So explain how this can be used to, for example, uh, allow a, a pickpocket performer to remove somebody's watch. Well, something a pickpocket might do is a combination of adaptation and generating an afterimage. So you're used to knowing that uh, your, your watch is in and that uh, you, again, when you first put on the watch, you notice it against your skin, but then the watch is gone. You don't notice anymore that it's there. The magician or the pickpocket might grab your wrist just uh, to direct you to pay attention to something else, and that uh, he may keep his hand over your wrist for a few seconds. What he's doing is he's pressing lightly over the surface of the watch, and he's both adapting your sensation and generating a sensory after image. So at the same time, he's removing your watch, and when he pulls his hand away, you still can feel your watch because the sensory after image is present but the watch is no longer there. So it is really a combination of adaptation and the generation of after images. These things often come together in the brain. So, so your brain is only, uh, only notices things that change, and so, <laughs> so it assumes your watch is still there, and meanwhile he's got it in his pocket. 
Steve, finally, <laughs> you, you guys tried learning magic yourself, and uh, you mentioned you even went to the Magic Castle in Hollywood, which is indeed a big old house where you know they do magic at night and all these people, close-up magic, uh, illusions. I've been there. It's incredible. It's an incredible place. What sort of tricks did you learn? Did you learn giant stage illusions? Well, we did. We put together what's called a parlor act. So it's in between close-up, which is done on a tabletop usually in, uh, with cards in front of somebody or with coins, and between that and, and grand stage illusions. So these are medium-sized illusions that you do in a parlor-sized room. And we did a number of different variants of magic tricks that were already known, including various rope tricks, card tricks, and we made an image of someone appear inside a jello brain. My goodness. Do you find being able to do this magic helps you, for example, to impress people across from you at a cocktail party or at a restaurant or, or, just, or just your colleagues at, at school? Uh, impress is the right word, but what I wouldn't say was necessarily positive. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, uh, it, what it has helped us to do is to create experiments that use magic in order to accomplish them. Well, that's fantastic. Steve Macknick and Susanna Martinez-Conde, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Stephen Macknick is the director of the Laboratory of Behavioral Neurophysiology at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. And Susanna Martinez-Conde is director of the Laboratory of Visual Neuroscience at the Barrow Neurological Institute. Coming up, from the neuroscience of what you see to that of what you hear. Can listening to music boost your smarts? Yes, that is, if it's the melodious sound of my voice. See, you do have cause to be skeptical (laughs) on Skeptic Check and our Potpourri Show, Monsters, Magic, and Music. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. In this melange of skeptical subjects, we now consider music. Music's good for your brain. Really good, according to a study at the Montreal Neurological Institute. Now, we've known that music is good for the soul, but this is the first direct evidence that listening to music actually releases the pleasure neurotransmitter dopamine in the part of your brain devoted to rewards. And you know what else triggers a dopamine release? Food and sex, also some drugs. So this explains why music, 
like a great Buddy Holly song, can give you euphoric chills. And even some music that's post-1959. Now, why is this item included in our show about critical thinking? Because it's just the sort of finding that is confused with questionable science about the brain. We'll explain and present an example of that after we hear about this music and brain study from Valerie Salampour, the researcher who led it. Now, Valerie, you studied a number of people who were listening to their favorite music. Specifically, you were studying their brains and what was happening to their brains when they were listening to their favorite music. And it turns out that dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, is released. Why is that a significant finding? Dopamine is a very phylogenetically ancient system. It's something that we share with other organisms. The reason why this system exists in the brain is to reinforce behaviors that are very adaptive, that are sort of necessary for survival. We know that music has been around forever. It's existed in every single culture throughout recorded history. And usually behaviors that last for this period of time are absolutely necessary for survival. The fact that music has also lasted for this long, despite any necessary evolutionary significance, is sort of something that makes people wonder why that might be the case. Now, it was, it's probably no surprise to find that we enjoy music. What did surprise you about your findings in this study? I think the most interesting part of the study was the distinction between the areas that were showing dopamine release. So when people are experiencing their peak pleasure moments, so they were actually getting chills or um, shivers down the spine. <laughs> and we found that right when people are experiencing those peak pleasure moments, they're actually releasing dopamine in an area called the nucleus accumbens. It's tightly connected to the emotion centers in the brain, the limbic system. And these are sort of the main emotion motivator centers of the brain, sort of the main feel-good area. What's even more interesting is what's happening before this peak experience. We actually found dopamine release in a different area, in a part of the brain called the dorsal striatum. This particular part of the brain is very tightly connected to the thinking centers of our brain. So this sort of makes music an intellectual reward, if you will. Music is really a sequence of tones that are arranged over time. So if you hear a single note, for example, that's not really going to be pleasurable. But if you hear a whole bunch of single notes that are somehow arranged in time in some sort of a pattern, then it's sort of like you're anticipating the next note. You're following along and you're expecting it to go somewhere and either confirms that or it surprises you in a very positive way. There's something about that buildup and that excitement that up until the point where you get to that part that you really like, that makes it pleasurable. So because music is associated with the release of dopamine, could music be used in an effective way to help patients with a neurological disease characterized by the loss of dopamine in the brain, such as Parkinson's? That's actually an excellent question because that is something that uh, people are looking into right now. It seems to be that we're always looking for ways that we can naturally enhance dopamine because when people take certain drugs to enhance dopamine there are always side effects that come about and so there's only a limit to how much of those drugs that you can take but the idea that something could be natural and not really bad for you but still lead to increases in dopamine is really exciting and it seems like the emotions that people experience in response to music could certainly be one of those things and this is actually an area that's being um uh, researched right now to what extent music can be used to help people with Parkinson's. Does music actually help the brain grow? There is some research on what we would call plasticity, so how exactly connections are being formed within your brain. Because brain growth could be considered the way that different cells in your brain are now connecting to each other. Because music uses so many different parts of the brain, it certainly is possible that it's increasing the number of connections in your brain. 
I myself am not doing research on that, but there are a number of people across North America and internationally that are very actively looking at how music contributes to brain plasticity. So for example, someone in our lab is looking at if you have early music experience or if you have musical training, if you listen to a lot of music as a child or if you get some formal training, how does that impact the size of different regions in your brain? And how does that impact its connections to language, for example? So are you better able to perceive language if you've had musical training? And the answer is yes. Does the music have to be recognized by the listener as pleasurable to be pleasurable? Because there's some music that is actually very moving and sad, but it could still be giving us great pleasure because it's such a release of emotion and it, and it helps us connect with other people. Or does it have to be music that we recognize as a listener as making us happy? That's actually a really important point because we don't always listen to music in order to experience happiness. I think it's more the emotional arousal that we experience that makes us feel good. So what I mean by that is it seems like as human beings, we really love to experience different forms of emotional arousal. And typically, we don't really get to experience those in our everyday situations because they don't necessarily allow for it. And this is why we listen to music or go to movies, and especially movies and music that are sad or that scare us, because we don't really want those situations in real life because they always have some sort of a negative consequence afterwards. If we experience intense sadness in real life, then we have to also deal with the consequence that comes in after that. But if we go see a sad movie, we get to experience that emotional arousal. It's almost like an emotional release. And it could also be the experience of empathy where you're empathizing with other people and feeling their emotions. And you often see music played at social situations where people are supposed to feel empathy, like at funerals and weddings and graduation. And music sort of helps you dictate what you're supposed to be feeling at that moment. Valerie, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It was very nice speaking with you. Valerie Salampour is a researcher at the Montreal Neurological Institute, McGill University, Quebec, Canada. Now, the idea that music can help your brain is something we've heard in a different form before. In the mid-1990s, the Mozart effect became a popular idea. That is, that listening to music could boost IQ. Pregnant mothers were told to play classical music to unborn children, and the governor of Georgia went so far as to set aside funds to supply school children with music CDs, all to boost brain power. Well, unfortunately for Wolfie, the Mozart effect was discredited. For one, it was a runaway train that was set in motion by a rather slimmer finding from one study. But to paraphrase Mark Twain, a bad rumor travels a long way before truth can lace up those old shoes. Now, it would seem that the findings at the Montreal Neurological Institute might offer credibility to the Mozart effect. After all, if music can help brains in one way, can't it help in another? And this is how scientific studies get conflated, how evidence for one finding is erroneously used to boost support for another. To see how the studies compare, we turn to Penny Glass, a developmental psychologist at George Washington University School of Medicine. Penny, what do you make of Salampour's finding that dopamine is released when we listen to music? Does this finding surprise you? No, it does not. Other things that provide us pleasure would also release a transmitter. It might be for somebody else uh, working in the garden, for example. Now, the study also found that part of the brain registers pleasure when we listen to music, but Mm -hmm. part of it gets a boost because we are anticipating the notes, as she put it, the flourishes and so forth, and she called Mm -hmm. this an intellectual reward. What does that mean? I think a marker of enjoyment of something that takes place in the brain is an exciting finding. 
some people try to take that information and turn it and say, therefore, we should listen to music in order to release neurotransmitter. And I think that's sort of coming in the back door. There's a lot of interest in adults in particular doing mental exercise, like exercising your muscles, and then your muscles might move around a little bit better, a little bit more comfortably. If we exercise our brain, are we then going to facilitate problem solving or something like that? I'm not sure we're at that point. I do like the image of the muscles in my brain moving around a little bit more comfortably. Mm -hmm. Anything that can help (laughs) what's going on up there is terrific. Well, this doesn't suggest that listening to music can make you smarter, does it? Because this was essentially the questionable claim called the Mozart effect. The original study back in the early 1990s found evidence that college students who listened to music had better spatial intelligence, but that Mm -hmm. faded after 15 minutes. That's quite a narrow claim Mm -hmm. compared with the claim that started to roll out of that over the years, which is that listening to Mozart Mm -hmm. boosts IQ. Does Valerie Salampour's study validate the Mozart effect? No, I don't think it validates the Mozart effect. I think the Mozart effect being equated with making somebody smarter is problematic. If we said smarter is solving a problem more quickly that you already know how to solve or being able to focus your attention at a task, that's more what the effect of a particular kind of music might have. But that doesn't make somebody intellectually of higher order. So the Mozart effect became associated with unsupported claims. Yes, particularly it was also extrapolated down to babies, and therefore we could make babies smarter. Whether one can generalize beyond the population that has been used for the study, that's always in question. If it works for this one group, that doesn't mean it's going to work for all the rest of us, and many times it does not. There's an interesting side point to that also. What are newborn babies like? What is a typical newborn baby like? They actually prefer to listen to voice over music, given a preference. They would choose voice, and they would choose their mother's voice because they're busy listening to their mother before they were born. That information, that language information, goes preferentially to the left hemisphere of the brain, which later becomes the language hemisphere. And music goes preferentially to the right hemisphere. The point is, if a normal newborn shows a preference for voice, and if we play music to them because we think we're making them smarter for whatever reason, but if we play a lot of music to them, more music than they would hear voices, you could probably shift that baby's preference from listening to voice to showing a preference for music. Okay, but that's a different claim from saying that you play the music and your child will be an Einstein, an Einstein by listening to Mozart. It's part of the point, which is, what is it that the baby should be listening to to begin with? Going down the music pathway in order to make the baby smarter may not be the direction to go at all. If you take into account what the baby is designed to do, which is to listen to speech and listen to your voice, and we should be cautious before we apply things like listening to particular music of any kind to young babies. Really, their brains are much more plastic and pliable. It's one of the super baby syndrome things that pop up from time to time and people think they've discovered something that makes babies smarter and then everybody gets excited about it and then it just seems to go away. And finally, Penny, is there any music that you listen to for pleasure or to help you think? (laughs) I listen to all kinds of music. I have developed a great fondness 
for opera. But I, I have to say, what I find in the evening, if I've had a hectic and noisy kind of day, what I like best is a particular composer called Liquid Mind. It's designed for total relaxation. It has no rhythm to it, and you can't hum it. It sort of washes over you in a way that is designed to be sort of totally relaxing. So music can be exciting and generate a lot of arousal in a person, and it can generate a lot of pleasure in a person. It can also help to induce rest and relaxation sort of on the other end. So I think music can serve a lot of wonderful purposes in our lives if people take it with how it works for them and what it can do for them. Right. Don't assume that it can make you smarter. Right. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're welcome. Penny Glass is a developmental psychologist and associate professor of pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Okay, it won't make you Einstein, but it might put a smile on your brain. That's it for our show. Thanks to help from the happy brains of Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where our show is produced. And thanks also to our listeners. And listeners, this means you. If you want to comment, congratulate, or sound off, please visit our website or our Facebook page. You've been listening to Skeptic Check's Skeptic Melange, Monsters, Magic, and Music. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. 